The following podcast is produced or sponsored by a community member. The content, views, and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not reflect those of BMC or the town of Belmont. BMC welcomes your comments. Give us a call at 617-484-2443 or email us at access at belmontmedia.org. Hello again, everyone. Boy, did that one without a hitch on uh, the disclaimer that time. Uh, welcome to another edition of the TOST Toddcast here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network, found online at belmontmedia.org slash podcasts, and also at soundcloud.com by searching Belmont Media. You can listen to the Toddcast at your convenience by downloading the free SoundCloud app available on both iTunes and Google Play stores. I'm Todd Bloniars from the award-winning Time Out for Sports Talk TV show available on BMC channels 28 and 29 and also on demand at belmontmedia.org. Well, if I were to offer up a uh, perfect analogy for the sports calendar here in mid-July, no doubt it is the hole in the middle of a donut. And thanks to Major League Baseball extending the All-Star break, the dearth of sports activity now lasts for two days instead of just one it's also appropriate that I use a donut analogy because I'm pleased to have Chad Finn of the Boston Globe and Boston.com back on the Toddcast. And anyone who reads his work and follows him on social media knows that his affinity for round pastries is right up there with his family, the Red Sox, and the state of Maine. Not necessarily in that order. Uh, Chad, thank you uh, for coming back to the Toddcast. Thanks for paying me in donuts. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I mean, I always, I, I always think of all your different uh, donut references. Uh, of course, Congdon Donuts just down the street from uh, your home in Maine, uh, a wonderful place that I've been to as well. And in fact, I was just reading uh, that uh, they've apparently added a food truck park open evenings. This is big news. Yeah, I knew, I knew about that before anybody. I can tell you that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice, uh, nice little place up here on Route One in uh, Wells, Maine, and. Uh, just drove by it actually, dropping my daughter off at basketball practice, and uh, places it's packed like some something you'd see in Fourth of July weekend in Cape Cod. It's, uh, it's absolutely insane. So I, I think the Globe story today probably helped out a little bit. That place has been thriving, and uh, it's, uh, I recommend it if you're ever up in the neck of the literal woods. Yeah, well, I, a trip to Congdon's is always uh, in my plans whenever I'm uh, heading up uh, north on I-95, no question, or, or Route 1. But, of course, this time of year, I know that Route 1 traffic in Wells and, and that whole area just kind of slows to a crawl. I can only imagine now with the addition of the, the Congdon's food truck park that it's it's going to be crawling even slower. That is absolutely true. Yeah, yeah it's funny. I, I used to commute down to Boston when the, the Globe was in Dorchester for a long time, uh, and it in the summer, it took me longer to get out of Maine than it would to get out of Boston after my shift was done. It was the, the traffic uh, on Route One here was was worse. Uh, it's gotten better a little bit. They widened things out, and uh, it's easier to navigate. But uh, it's uh, it's a uh, big city big city traffic in a small small summer town a lot of the time. Yeah, no, seriously, I don't even know how you like if you have to just run an errand down the street. Uh, in in your hometown, I mean, how do you even do that? Because it's like you know, just trying to get out. You're you got to get into that long caravan of traffic going down Route One. Uh, we know back ways. It's like uh. the craft getting out of uh, Gillette Stadium with all that traffic. They've got uh, they got sneaky roads up behind the stadium, and uh, we we got a few here up in Maine too to, to get you where you need to be. 
Fair enough. Uh, maybe uh, after the after the uh, podcast, maybe we will. Uh, maybe you can text me some of those ideas. We don't want to get them out there in the whole public uh, uh, stratosphere for everybody to know about. But uh, we'll uh, maybe we'll talk later. Anyway, uh, I want to start with some breaking news. I mean, hard to believe. We I just mentioned how little there is on the sports calendar. In fact, no games. You know, over the next couple of days in Major League Baseball, and really. You know, no major events to speak of, but uh, there was a little bit of NBA uh, news today. Uh, the news of the uh, the Kawhi Leonard trade, kind of out of the blue as far as the uh, team he got dealt to. It's the the Toronto Raptors. And do uh, uh, you have any early thoughts on this deal, Chad? I mean, uh, what you know, like who, who benefits from this? I mean, well, actually, how does it uh, affect you know the Raptors and then kind of vis-a-vis with uh, the Celtics trying to compete in the Eastern Conference next year? I think the only person who knows how it's going to work is Kawhi Leonard because uh, he played nine. He played eight more games than Gordon Haywood last year. Let's put it that way. He uh, uh, had a quad injury. First cleared him to play. He never came back to play. He did briefly, but uh, was gone after that. There's been talk forever that he wants to go to Los Angeles, preferably the Lakers. He has a quote-unquote Uncle Dennis, I think his name is, or something like that, who's sort of managing his affairs now and. Uh, it doesn't seem like a lot of the decisions that they have made have benefited Kawhi Leonard's reputation very much. I mean, shooting your way out of San Antonio uh, is, is something that's probably unfathomable to a lot of NBA players. It's, it's, it's kind of an ideal situation with, uh, you know, the, the heyday with Duncan and Parker and uh, all the role players that they had. Ginobili, of course, doing all the role players and Pop. And uh, it's kind of the Patriots of the NFL in a way, uh, Patriots of the NBA in a way. And you know, that's gone now. Parker's gone, and uh, the, uh, Duncan retired, and uh, you wonder how much longer Popovich will be around. But uh, it seemed like things are set up pretty well with Leonard, and you just don't want to be there for some reason. There's still mystery surrounding that. We hear he doesn't really want to go to Toronto. He uh, sounds like it's L.A. or bust for him. So there was a lot of risk with this, with Toronto making this trade. DeRozan's a four-time All-Star, and I, I know he's sunk in the playoffs, and he's kind of an 80s relic with his mid-range game rather than being a three-point bomber, but... He's a really good basketball player who really cared about playing in Toronto and, and winning with that team. And in a way, he's going to be an ideal spur, but it's a risky for them to give him up to bring in a guy in Leonard who may only be there for a year, and you don't know how interested he is in playing there. If he's not interested, we see what happens when he's disinterested in playing for a team. He disappears. So a lot of risks by the Raptors in making this trail is, trade as great as Leonard is. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no no question about that. Certainly high risk from their perspective. Uh, just to continue on your, your your Patriots analogy, and obviously we, you know, many folks have uh, compared the Spurs and the Patriots franchises and the way they're run, but even, you know, right down to Popovich and Belichick, this almost, this move by Popovich to send uh, Kawhi to Toronto, of all places, almost feels a little Belichickian in nature. I'm thinking of like, you know, when, when he, uh, Jamie Collins got jettisoned to Cleveland. I mean, this seems like a, a similar kind of move. Kawhi going to a place with, I think, like the highest tax rate in the NBA, uh, obviously because of the, you know, the fact it's outside the United States and, and, and certainly not some place that he wants to be. Like you said, he, his, uh, his eyes are on uh, L.A. Uh, as soon as he hits free agency next year. Yeah, it's a beautiful city, uh, but it's not not a city that's very kind of the paycheck, and uh, it's one reason they've had a hard time uh, keep getting free agents there in any sport. The Blue Jays for a long time have had a hard time with that. Uh, DeRozan was a guy who wanted to stay there, and you look at the Raptors' history, pretty much every superstar they've ever had shot his way out of town. Vince Carter wanted to leave. Tracy McGrady got out of there as fast as he could. Chris Bosh left for uh, 
took his talents to South Beach with those other guys. So uh, they appreciated, I guess, that DeRozan wanted to be there, but not enough to, uh, to, to not deal him for a player of Leonard's magnitude. Uh, I guess maybe they have to take that risk uh, in getting guys to come there and hope that once the player is there and sees what the city's like, how fun it is, how beautiful it is, and that they actually still have a really good basketball team, maybe that will appeal to Leonard once he's in the situation. But uh, it's hard for Toronto to get superstars to, to, to come up there, and uh, this might have, be the route that they have to do to, to, to go about it. Yeah, assuming Leonard is totally engaged uh, with the Raptors over this upcoming season, how do you think it affects the balance of power in the Eastern Conference? Uh, you know, the Celtics uh, probably by many are being considered the, the preeminent favorite with the return of uh, Gordon Hayward next year. So a team with an engaged Kawhi Leonard, uh, that Raptors team, how does it, uh, you know, how would that compare uh, with the Celtics uh, in the East? Well, it's funny because uh, an engaged Kawhi Leonard is still an injury-prone Kawhi Leonard. I looked it up earlier. I can't remember if the number was 76 or 74. I think it's 74 in, in that he's had five seasons of 74 or fewer games, and only two games, I think, in the 70s. He's never played more than 76, if I remember right. So uh, he's not the most durable guy. And, yes, the Spurs rested players. They were out in front on that. But uh, Leonard was a young buck at that point, and he still is to some degree. I think he's only 26. So he wasn't somebody they were wrestling like they were Duncan Ginobili and Parker, and yet he still missed a lot of time. I'd be wary of that if I were Toronto. Uh, who knows how serious the quad injury is. It was it was uh, one where Tony Parker said, you know, my injury is worse than his, and that's one of the things that apparently ticked, ticked, uh, ticked Leonard off and t- uh, made him not want to go back to San Antonio. But uh, if it is something that genuinely is serious and that he wasn't malingering on and, and uh, it is something that, that affects him the rest of the way, who knows how much he plays. I, I I tweeted it earlier. I'm curious what the over-under would be on games played for him this year because uh, as great as he is and when he's healthy, he's a legitimate top-five player in the NBA, uh, he's had a hard time staying on the court. Yeah, no, that's very true. Um, really quick, uh, another NBA note. Uh, it sounds like the Celtics and Marcus Smart are very close to uh, settling on uh, what I believe might be about a four-year deal, somewhere in the 45 to $50 million range. So I guess that averages out to about maybe 12, 12 and a half a year. Uh, what do you think, uh, if that turns out to be the uh, the deal that Danny signs Marcus Smart, locks him up for, do you think that's a, a pretty fair, equitable deal for both sides? I do. I think it's good faith by the Celtics, too, because the restricted free agency process sucks for the players. Uh, you go out there and you, you have to hope a team makes an offer and uh, that you want, and the teams uh, with that money to spend are looking at guys like Smart and saying, if we offer them this, it's going to get matched anyway, so why bother? You know, Unless you go up to 14, 15, some number of the Celtics aren't going to want to pay. Nobody is willing to do that. That Kings rumor uh, never materialized and into an offer sheet, and uh, so the Celtics could have brought him back for the $5.9 million, I think it is, the qualifying offer. Uh, but he's a player they like. He's a guy, a person that they love, uh, Brad Stevens and Danny Inge both, and they want him there. And I think this, in offering him essentially what they offered him in the fall, before uh, which he turned down, going back and making that offer again, I think that's good faith and a way to tell him, listen, I know this process was tough, but we really want you here. We're going to make you the offer that uh, you know you should have taken in the first place, probably. Yeah, no, it's yeah. I, I think it's uh, it is a, a good deal, and uh, you know, in the end, uh, I think he's a, a critical part of that team in of the you know that defensive specialist, that one guy they can bring in to like lock down 
the other team's best scorer. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it does feel like it's going to be a, a fair deal on both sides. And, you know, as long as it's not going to affect them. Uh, I know the NBA cap's a lot different than, uh, you know, caps in some of the other uh, sports leagues because it's just, I, I guess you can sign him to a certain amount and that still leaves enough room for you to sign because everything's, like, slotted in terms of salary. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's this... It, it's not as complex as it is as it is in uh, the NFL, where you're trying to fit a minimum of 53 players under under a cap and, and uh, dividing up salaries a million different ways. But uh, it is uh, complicated in that you're not only signing a guy for what you're paying him, but you're looking at that contract and saying, okay, what kind of asset is this guy if uh, it doesn't work out and we want to trade him down the road? You know, in a way. Paying Marcus Smart a little bit more money works out well for the Celtics because as crazy as it sounds, if they decide, you know what, we Marcus isn't what we thought, or he has injury problems, or his defensive intensity wanes, or some crazy thing like that, and they want to move him in a trade and uh, with an expiring contract. When it came to that point, he the, the fifteen or twelve million, whatever they end up paying him, is going to be much more appealing than paying him five or six million dollars. It's just uh, it, it's a it's a way for a team to clear more cap space if they were acquiring him in a deal in the last year of his contract. So there's so many complexities like that that uh, add extra layers to any deal that you see where you look at it and you say, okay, he's getting that money and uh, that he's getting that many years and that's that. And it's really never that that. There are always other variables involved. Yeah, well, as long as it's not a max deal, I know that each team is limited to uh, a certain number of those, and you know certainly uh, Mark is not worthy of that. But yeah, something in the mid range, that's fine by me. But uh, let's kind of uh, switch uh, topics here and move on, of course, to uh, Major League Baseball, uh, the big you know All Star Week, as we said, it's kind of the dearth on the sports calendar. Not a lot of uh, uh, games going on right now, other than you know the All Star Game last night, American League. Uh, winning yet again, 18th time in the last 21 years. And uh, I, what I didn't realize going into last night's All-Star game was uh, the overall series uh, between the two leagues tied at 43 wins apiece with a, a couple of ties tossed in. And the, also not only were they tied in games overall, but they were also tied in runs. Each team with 361 runs scored in, in All-Star game history. Uh, so the American League now, I guess it's the first time since the 1960s that they've led in the series, and they really have dominated over the last two decades. Last night, uh, you know, rallying uh, a couple of times uh, after they, they blew the lead, uh, came back and won an extra innings. And uh, a, a really quick question now, I have to admit, I did not see every single uh, pitch of the game, particularly the end. I don't know how much of it you saw, Chad, but was there was there any explanation as to why Craig Kimbrell wasn't brought in in the 10th inning? to close that game out, and instead they went to uh, J.A. Happ, uh, certainly not an experienced closer, even though he did end up getting the save. No, I haven't seen any explanation of that at all. I don't know if uh, if Kimball can only pitch in the ninth, and it's not the eighth or the tenth that he can handle. <laughs> oh, Who knows? God. Oh, God, I hope not. I hope that's not the case. <laughs> really facetiously there. No, I know. I, I imagine they were just... Uh, be trying to hang on to him for a little bit later, or he said, you know, I've got this many pitches in my arm, something like that. But, uh, yeah, I heard no explanation of that at all. I don't know. It's a little bit of a mystery. Yeah, I mean, I think I don't – I'm trying to remember how big the pitching staff was. I think Kimbrell might have been the only American League pitcher not to get into the game. But uh, all the other Red Sox uh, – uh, all-star representatives made appearances. Uh, Mookie ends up going 0-3 for 3 with a couple of strikeouts. Uh, J.D. Martinez, 1-for-2 uh, with a base hit and a strikeout. Mitch Moreland, 2-for-3 with a couple of singles and a strikeout. And, you know, and let's get to the game itself, which uh, featured 
an all-star record 10 home runs, which shattered the old record of six in in a single all-star game. Not to mention there were also 25 total strikeouts between the two teams. And, uh, you know, again, kind of indicative of the game. In fact, I actually did this. I I kind of broke it down uh, looking at the box score, uh, taking the plate appearances, subtracting out the strikeouts, the home runs, and the walks and hit batters, and less than half of the at-bats in the ball game or half the uh, plate appearances actually ended with a ball hit into the field of play, which is kind of indicative of of the way baseball is right now. And uh, uh, I guess it kind of leads me to this long-winded question, Chad. Uh, Your your thoughts on the fact that uh, most at-bats these days, or at least half of them, tend to end with a walk or a strikeout or a home run. Is this, uh, you know, is this make for good baseball? Certainly not the game you and I remember growing up watching. Yeah, it's the uh, two true outcomes uh, effect on baseball. You used, used to talk about that with Adam Dunn, the old Reds and White Sox slugger, where he either hit a home run, struck out, or walked. <laughs> it, was, it seemed like he never did anything else. And uh, Major League Baseball itself has trended that way. It's, it's the analytics to some degree that, uh, um, you know, recognizing, I, I think, in a lot of ways, that an out is an out, and that there's not a big difference between the ground ball, the shortstop, and and uh, strike out on the effects on an offense, but uh, you can have benefits from trying to launch home runs rather than uh, trying to go station to station and, and stringing a few hits together mathematically. It makes more sense to swing to the fences. Uh, it seems odd to think that and, and to think of the way baseball was played for a lot of years, but some of it's logical, too. Like, uh, uh, for growing up in the 70s, you thought, okay, you got to get the runner into scoring position, bunt him along, give up that out. That's the right thing to do, and it really isn't. It doesn't make sense when you have 27 outs in a baseball game uh, to devalue one of them, to say, we'll just let them get this easy out to, to get a runner uh, to advance the bases. It's really not as beneficial as maybe um, you know baseball strategy made it seem back in those days. And in a way, that's progress. I know that people like to watch uh, hit and runs and, and stolen bases and that sort of thing, but uh, the math has come out that uh, unless you're super efficient at that stuff, uh, it really doesn't help you. It tends to hurt you a little bit more in the long run. So it's turned into a home run game. We'll see what the adjustments are. I mean, baseball has changed uh, a million different ways over the years. And I was doing some stuff on uh, on the Red Sox teams, and their history has won 100 games because the current Red Sox, they go 32 and 32 the rest of the way. They won 100, which is amazing. Yep. And there are only yep. three in their history. And I was looking back, two of them were 1912 and 1915. And Red Sox home run leader in 1915 was Babe Ruth, a pitcher who hit four. You know, right. the <laughs> game has evolved and, uh, and changed and shifted shapes and um, gone a bunch of different ways through the years. And uh, we just happen to be in one of those phases right now. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, it, it seems. Uh, well, let me ask you this, too. Uh, I'm assuming you did watch uh, parts of uh, either the Home Run Derby, the All-Star Game, or both. What was your, your general thoughts about just All-Star Week uh, this year? I, I, I'll give you my really quick thoughts. Uh, one, with the Home Run Derby, you know, being someone who, uh, you know, tends to follow the American League a lot more than the National League, I was very disappointed that of the eight participants, only one of them was an American League player. And then as far as, uh, you know, even the game last night, uh, you know, I was I was watching it with the sound down. Uh, typically, I get together with uh, some of my friends from one of my fantasy baseball leagues, and we we go out and uh, usually watch it at a, like a local watering hole. So you know, I'm not hearing anything, but you know, you're glancing up, watching the game on occasion. You know, seeing the home runs and 
and whatnot. And I, you know, I saw, you know, the selfies and, you know, I, I think Rob Manfred's trying to find uh, a way to like, you know, uh, get these players to kind of let down their hair a little bit, so to speak, and, you know, kind of, uh, you know, be more, uh, you know, fan friendly or fan accessible, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, just, uh, you know, I guess the game itself had some excitement, but it was still three and a half hours long. And the fact now that it means nothing and that, uh, you know, interleague play has kind of sapped some of the magic of the AL-NL matchup uh, to a degree. Uh, what, what were your thoughts of, of both the Derby and uh, the All-Star game last night? Uh, Derby was fun, ultimately. I don't think anybody expected it to be because uh, name recognition wasn't exactly high. You know, Jesus Aguilar has had a fine season, but... Uh, I don't. I don't think many people uh, could pick him out of a lineup of cleanup hitters, you know, and tell you which guy he was. It's, uh, uh, not a lot of star power uh, in the home run derby, and I don't know how they they remedy that because uh, you know you had, you've had Stan and Judge and guys like that do well in it, and it really hasn't had an effect on them later on in the season. But then you've had guys like Bobby Abreu, famously David Wright, one year. Uh, guys who who seem to lose their swing uh, in at the home run derby. I think that tends to be a convenient excuse, but uh, some people seem to some of the players seem to think that trying to jack home runs kind of affects their approach in the second half. It's uh, you know it feels like kind of a convenient excuse for a slump in a lot of ways, but uh, it is the myth anyway. So I think that keeps some guys out. Some guys, you know, players are so. Uh, in tune with keeping themselves healthy right now, that they, they, they take that break when they can get it. I think that was J.D. Martinez's major reasoning, not wanting to mess up his swing as part of it, but just getting the breather while you can. You know, he's playing in the All-Star game anyway, but, uh, you know, take that night before off and uh, just uh, unwind a little bit. So uh, it's all that. The All-Star game itself is a lot of fun. Uh, I still like it. You know, I love the pregame introductions. It's my favorite part as a kid. It's so cool to see that. Uh, Major League Baseball definitely – was over, was emphasizing and probably overemphasizing the personalities of the players in that game. Having Ken Rosenthal walk basically into the batter's box with Mookie Betts and Javier Baez to start the game. Oh yeah, yeah, I did right see up that. Until, was... <laughs> right up until they were facing the pitcher. So there's a, uh, you know, there's, there's, I don't blame them for trying, but uh, uh, I don't know if that's the right thing to do. But I didn't find it, you know, irritating or anything like that. It was just really obvious what they were what they were up to there. Speaking of Rosenthal, really quick, I saw him interviewing Manny Machado. They didn't talk about his trade, his imminent trade to the Dodgers during that interview, did they? While uh, he's still wearing an Orioles uniform and appearing in the All Star game. Ah, uh, that's a good question. I didn't see that part. Oh, okay. So, uh, <laughs> I know Machado was talking about it a little bit later on about the, the possibility that yeah, maybe I heard I might be in part of a trade, and uh, I might have been in the other dugout if the trade happened earlier, and kind of joking <laughs> around about it. So. Yeah. Very clear it was fait accompli, and that he's headed to LA unless, uh, you know, unless the Dodgers, unless the Orioles mess this up uh, with the medicals like they tend to do sometimes. Well, and that's what I'm hearing. There's at least a holdup right now. Like nothing's been finalized yet. I guess as as of this afternoon, as we're uh, recording this podcast, there was uh, no uh, imminent. news of the trade being completed i guess some of the the prospects that the orioles are going to be getting or uh are being held up uh, from their physicals or whatever so we'll have to wait and see how that uh how that transpires, but yeah, no, I mean, you know, like you said, uh, you know, the, you know, having Rosenthal run up, you know, run up with uh, Mookie Betts to, I mean, if the game doesn't count anymore, which it doesn't, I mean, you know, you might as well do kind of uh, fun stuff like that. I don't really have a problem so much with uh, with that, and and if the ball players want to all bring their phones into the dugout because that's something they don't get to do very often, then or at all, then yeah, okay. 
Yeah, it was cool. Oh, I, I, I like the selfie aspect. There's actually a great picture out there of uh, Trout, Mookie Betts, and Aaron Judge where they're you know, large, medium, and small. It's, it's pretty hilarious. And you, you look at that picture as a baseball fan and say, you know what, that's a heck of an outfield. That's a, that, that's a, that's a great three players right there. And uh, it's one of those things, I think, that in a small way makes you appreciate them a little bit more than, uh, than, than maybe you would. I mean, of course, we appreciate Mookie and how great Mike Trout is and Red Sox fans fear and respect Aaron Judge to some degree, but uh, seeing those three guys together and seeing them in a cool photo together, it has the effect that Major League Baseball wants for that. Yeah, and the other good news from a, a Red Sox perspective, if you were uh, one of those that was concerned the, of Chris Sale being used too much or he was going to throw too hard, well, he only, he only pitched an inning. He only threw nine pitches, so uh, it would have been just like getting his work in, his side work in between starts. I know he's scheduled to uh, make his first start out of the All-Star break in Detroit on Sunday, so he's still getting a pretty, you know, an extended break of about, you know, 11 days with just the, the nine pitches, nine hard pitches thrown in the middle there yeah yeah he hit 100 miles an hour for the first time in a couple of years uh, certainly the first time this year and it's kind of a flashback it's so funny looking at what a dominant pitcher he is and, and uh, he's been a Cy Young top six or top eight finisher every year that he's been a starter but his uh, his first two years of his career he's a relief pitcher he's a setup guy basically for the White Sox his second his first full major league season because they were uh, wary that he would be able to hold up as a starting pitcher. I guess there's still some question about that in terms mm. of his total dominance, but uh, it's it's funny to look at him and see him go out there and dial it up to 100 miles an hour or anything because uh, at the very beginning of his career, that's what his job was. It was just at the end of the game. Yeah, and what else is funny, too, uh, you, you mentioned uh, how Sale uh, de- was developed by the White Sox. Well, I can think of another White Sox left-hander not too long ago. Didn't throw 100 miles an hour, but basically started the same way as kind of a middle reliever and then became a pretty dominant starter during his time, Mark Burley. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty much the opposite of Sale in terms of uh, his, his stuff. His, but right. One thing they had in common other than the left hand was uh, that they got the ball and pitched it. For no, but nobody pitched a quicker game than Burley, and that's that's one of the subtle things to appreciate about watching Chris Sale, too. He doesn't mess around. Yeah, and when, you know, right, exactly. I mean, he's, you know, he's already pitching like there was a pitch clock, and, you know, of course, there, there sort of is. It's being slowly, you know, integrated into the major league game. Certainly the minor leagues are all using it now, and that can only mean good things down the road as far as trying to quicken up the pace of the game. I mean, it would be better, I, I think, for all involved, you know, and fans, too, if uh, they could find a way to try to get, you know, the average game back somehow under three hours again. I know that's probably asking a lot, but, you know, it would be uh, it would be nice, and maybe it would get, get some fans more interested uh, or bring in new fans. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I've never been one of mine at the long game because I, I tend to watch a game in and out anyway. You know, watch a few in it, watch a few pitches or a few innings, and, uh, then, uh, you know, go have some eat or go read or come back, check in the game, put the kids to bed, that sort of thing. I don't know how many people nowadays are actually going to sit in front of a television set and watch a game for three hours or even two and a half hours beginning to end. It's just not the way uh, our culture works nowadays. Well, and not when there's 162 of them on the calendar. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, 162 <laughs> of them. And uh, every show you could ever want to watch on Netflix or whatever your device is and uh, just other distractions. Uh, it's uh, Nesson's uh, it, ratings from 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock uh, waver because it depends on what's going on in the game and, uh, you know, people coming home from going out, that sort of thing. And it's just kind of, it, it's how it is now. It's, uh, 
it's not a we're not a culture that's going to sit down and watch a baseball game for for three straight hours. We're talking with uh, Chad Finn from the Boston Globe and Boston.com. And, Chad, uh, this seems like the perfect segue into uh, the Red Sox and, and their uh, tremendous first half. I was actually reading your, uh, your story today uh, in uh, both the Globe and on Boston.com, uh, the superlatives, all of the uh, – and, and really it's been a first half of superlatives. The Red Sox winning more games in the first half than any Red Sox team in history, actually any major league team in history, thanks to the fact he, you know they were playing so many games games before the before the all-star break but you know there's very little unless you're listening to sports radio of course but and we'll get to that topic later but you know other you know if you just look at the numbers and if you've been watching any of the Red Sox games this year it's been nothing but superlatives that you can use to describe uh, what they've been able to do uh, so far well you know Todd the biggest complaint about the Red Sox is they haven't proven it in October yet that's what everybody says is uh, yeah, they're awesome right now, but they got to do it in October. Well, I also heard a, a certain—I'm sorry—I also heard a certain host from a six to seven show mention uh, about a month ago. They haven't had any good scandals yet either. Oh yeah, that's another one. <laughs> but I'm sorry. well. What's impressed? I, I got to ask though, as far as you know, how well they've been playing in, in this great start. I mean, what's impressed you most about uh, this club uh, through the first uh, ninety-eight games of the season? Well, they—they. They, Pretty much everything, other than uh, you know, other than the, the David Price situation, which he, he tends to put his foot in his mouth and uh, has this very sarcastic way about him that doesn't come across at all as humorous. He's really popular as a teammate, different with his teammates, but the way he presents himself to the fans and the media, it, it does him no favors. And so when things go well for him, uh, you know, he tends to step on his uh, own foot with that and and uh, uh, cause himself issues that really shouldn't happen. And that's annoyed people of this year. He's been terrible against the Yankees, which uh, only magnifies it. But basically, he's been a league average pitcher. You're not paying him to be a league average pitcher, but you'll take a league average pitcher in the middle of your rotation, a guy with 10 wins and on the fringes of the strikeout and inning pitch leaders. And uh, been okay, you know, pretty decent. Some terrible starts, some really good ones, some decent stretches. That's the worst thing about your, your team so far this year. You know, you're having an extraordinary season. The the best stuff, I mean, Mookie's hitting, what, 359? You know, it felt like he had a bad year last year. He, he, he had actually a really good year by uh, most players' standards, but his batting average was down. He was an especially lucky. Uh, had a bum knee for a little bit of a time that affected him. But uh, he's just he's having a Nomar in 99, 2000 kind of season right now with the, the way he seems to hit a rocket every time up and, uh, J.D. Martinez, he was exactly uh, exactly what you needed last year. You, you needed somebody to replace David Ortiz in the heart of that lineup to be the guy that put all the pressure on the opposing pitcher and took the pressure off his teammates, and uh, he's been exactly that. I mean, he's got 58 home runs over the last calendar year, 29 with the Red Sox, wow. 29 with the, with the Diamondbacks. He was traded from the Tigers to the Diamondbacks on this day last season and has been probably the best slugger in Major League Baseball since. So he's everything you could have wanted. Mookie's been everything you, you could have wanted. Uh, Chris Sale has been extraordinary. It's just been a, a really fun team to watch and a really, uh, really 
uh, admirable team in the way they go about their business. Yeah, well, let's talk about those uh, top two hitters, uh, you know, starting with uh, J.D. Martinez. And, you know, you talk about the perfect signing. And I know I, I know from reading your column for many years, I know you were one for the longest time who was advocating, you know, the Red Sox getting uh, Giancarlo Stanton. And I got to admit, I got caught up in some of that hype, too, and was disappointed when, when he eventually got dealt to the Yankees. But, you know, with J.D. Martinez, he's everything, like you said, he's everything the Red Sox need in their lineup. And even more amazingly, uh, the Red Sox were able to get him at their price. They didn't bid against themselves an overbid and, and pay him. I mean, they're they're paying him you know less than, I, I think, per year than they're paying Rick Porcello or maybe close to the same amount, certainly a lot less than David Price, and to get this kind of production and just – and then also just the way he seems to kind of – how quickly he assimilated into Boston, which, as we well know, there are a lot of players uh, – we were just talking about one of them – who, you know, it, it's not that easy for him to just kind of, you know, uh, dip their toe in the, in the Boston waters and, uh, you know, be able to handle uh, – the pressure of playing here. Yeah, it's kind of ironic because you know he started a little bit slow the first couple of weeks, but it's been an extraordinary since. And uh, it could have been a situation where the weight got on his back a little bit and had an effect, but it really didn't. He just came through his, his slow start in the cold weather and uh, turned into the hitter that he's, he's been for the last couple of years, one of the best in baseball. Whereas with Stanton, he struggled in New York quite a bit. You know, they booed him down there. He's had a few moments. He had a walk-off home run that still hasn't landed yet, and uh, still hitting for power, if nothing else. And uh, uh, But the acclimation for him has been more difficult in the Bronx and it's been for Martinez, who's a much more low-key kind of guy uh, here. So it's, it's been an ideal marriage in a lot of different ways. And it is a bargain for the Red Sox, though uh, they give him a two-year opt-out. So uh, he, they're going to be, if, if he continues to hit like that this for the rest of the season and next year, uh, he's going to get himself a nice little raise from the measly $22 million he's getting this year. That, that is true. And while uh, the Red Sox are, you know, while Red Sox management is definitely rooting for maybe David Price to utilize his opt-out, I think they're they're thinking the opposite way uh, with uh, J.D. Martinez, the way he's uh, come out of the gate for them. Uh, the, the other positive, uh, you know, influence that uh, Martinez has had has been on some of the other hitters in the lineup, which would probably include Mookie Betts as well. I mean, like you said, Betts was a little bit down last year, but this year he's, you know, he's leading the AL and hitting and he's, you know, he's about to become a 2020 uh, guy again, uh, which, you know, there haven't been that many of them in Red Sox history. So that's quite an accomplishment. And, you know, we, you talk about, uh, you know, you brought it up in your superlatives column, you know, the, the best grand slam, probably the best moment of the first half of the season. And and like you, I don't watch every inning of every game from start to finish. So I, I, I almost feel kind of privileged for the fact that I just happen to be watching the inning and the that 13 pitch at bat. Uh, between uh, Mookie Betts and, and the Blue Jays, and the fact that uh, you know finished with, with the grand slam, and that was just, uh, yeah, I mean that was that was that was fun to watch. I'm I'm glad I, I just happened to be watching that inning when it happened, and it's uh, you know w- watching Betts and watching all the grand slams. I can't believe nine in the first half of the season uh, with zero home uh, grand slams hit last year by this team. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous, isn't it? The major league record I think is sixteen, it's fourteen or sixteen, and I know they. Uh, they already broke the X, 96 Expos record for the most before uh, the end of May. So uh, they're on a, a historic track here with the Grand Slams. And there are a few plays, of course, in baseball that are more exciting than that. You know, maybe a bases loaded triple or something like that, a triple play. But the uh, Grand Slam is about as good as it gets. And we've had our share this year. Uh, Mookie's, I think, was the best. Uh, his reaction was incredible. You know, he's, he's the nicest guy you'd ever meet. He's just a good kid, but... Uh, 
part of the issue with Major League Baseball is it's hard to market a good kid sometimes. There's not a lot of edge to him. He's just a, somebody who uh, loves to play baseball and an absolute joy to watch, but uh, isn't going to do those Bryce Harper kind of things that bring attention to themselves. And uh, So it was fun to see his reaction and kind of stumbling to first base and pumping his fist all the way around. That was pretty cool. And You know, it's been other guys, too, that Martinez has had an effect on and that's uh, kind of uh, gotten into the, the, the finding the enjoyment in the game again after losing it a little bit last year under John Farrell. Xander Bogarts has had a, uh, the first half that you'd expect out of him, and he had the, the, the grand slam in the 10th inning to win that Saturday game against the Blue Jays, then followed it up with a home run on Sunday in the last game before the break. So he's, uh, I think he's already tied his RBI total from last year, and he's, he's probably going to break his career high for home runs. He's only five away. So nice to see him having the kind of season that people have uh, wanted out of him for the last couple of years. Yeah, no question, Chad. I've been a big Bogarts fan uh, his uh, entire career, and uh, I think one of the big reasons, and you, you kind of uh, indirectly mentioned it, uh, Bogarts, I think, is benefiting from the fact that uh, Alex Cora has uh, stepped in, uh, kind of like J.D. Martinez. Uh, Cora has stepped into his job uh, almost seamlessly as well. Uh, what are your uh, your thoughts on, on Alex Cora in his uh, first managerial stint? I mean, I guess it helps when you have a lot of talent on the field, but uh, what, what are your overall thoughts of his performance? Uh, it's about what I expected, and I expected it to go really well. Um, I thought there may be some issues with actually managing the game with uh, bullpen management or, or using knowing when a starting pitcher's cooked, or that sort of thing. But there really hasn't been much of that. He's, he's done actually a great job of, of going to the hot hand in the bullpen and uh, uh, using Matt Barnes when he's rolling and using Joe Kelly until he cools, cools off and then going to somebody else and juggling things really well. That's been pretty impressive because I wasn't sure, you know, a guy who is a utility infielder and isn't that far removed from his playing days as a hitter uh, could handle a pitching staff as well. So I, I guess a lot of that credit goes to pitching coach Daniel Levanji too, but uh, uh, I, I'm impressed by that. And yeah, I was around the Red Sox when Cora was playing, and he's always been a really bright, engaging guy who can he can connect with anybody. He can connect with a you know, dorky 40-something sports writer like me. He can connect with Xander Bogart. Uh, he, he's really friendly, bright, and uh, loves, to, loves to talk to people, loves to know people. And that has been a huge benefit to this team. Last year, the, one of their major issues was the fact that John Farrell just lost these guys. And Xander Bogart is a good guy. Mookie Betts is a good guy. Uh, ben Intendi cares about being a really good Major League Baseball player. And when they would have slumps last year, Farrell just didn't do anything. He didn't give them a, a uh, somebody a pep talk. He didn't give them uh, uh, someone uh, to tell them, "Listen, you know, I, I believe in you. Go out there. It's go- it's going to be all right." Or with Bogarts' case, I know you're hurt. I appreciate you playing through this. I've got your back. He didn't do any of that. It was the same every day, good or bad. Uh, and you know, sometimes that's a good thing when people are even keel. But in Farrell's case, it wasn't because he was just kind of a a drone and somebody that really didn't bring any benefit to these guys. So bringing Coro, who's uh, upbeat, communicative, and also has a great knowledge of the game and the respect of people, the Red Sox, who knew him as a player, uh, is a really, really savvy hire by, by Dave Dombrowski. 
Yeah, it's uh, I. You summed it up pretty nicely there. Uh, yeah, Cora is everything that Farrell is not, and his people skills have been great. And I, I think the fact that he's bilingual uh, certainly helps him communicate with everybody on that team. Um, you know, like you know, I know Bogarts knows eight languages, so now uh, at least uh, he, he and Cora can talk in two different languages anyway. Uh, I, I, as far as I know, Cora's only uh, fluent in two languages. I mean, maybe there's another one. I don't know. Uh, but uh, uh, well, it's you know, going from you know. Obviously, all the optimism you, you did address some of the concerns about the Red Sox uh, as we head into the uh, the final couple months of the season, and I, I would I guess I kind of will start with there, and you you brought it back to price, and I would bring it back to uh, the pitching staff as a whole. Certainly, uh, you know you know over the weekend, you know the Red Sox were hitting walk off grand slams and all, but uh, lost in all that was Eduardo Rodriguez's uh, ankle injury. I guess there's some pretty severe ligament damage in his right ankle, and you know he was a big part of that first half of the rotation. He was one of four four starters to win ten games or more, and uh, they're really going to miss him because it sounds like he's going to be out for an extended period. So uh, I, I guess I would ask you, what concerns do you have and how do you think the Red Sox can address some of those concerns as we approach the July 31st Major League uh, trade deadline? Yeah, I actually think that's their biggest need. I know people want uh, want another relief pitcher, but I get the sense maybe they can find that from within. They've juggled it pretty well. Uh, they've brought up some young guys that uh, have, have been at least intriguing and uh, yeah, I, with Tyler Thornburg back, with Brandon Workman throwing really well right now and being a guy who seems like he's, he hasn't been here for a while, but five years ago he helped them win a World Series. Yeah. He's one of the more reliable relief pitchers. So uh, I think that the hope is that those guys those guys end up being more significant contributors and you find your help in the bullpen that way. By the way, really quick, d- don't forget about Ryan Brazier, too. I don't know where this guy came from, but uh, I guess he throws really hard and uh, he's looked good so far in limited action. Yeah, he has. He, he's uh, He's got bounced around a little bit, but he's got a great arm and uh, seems to be contributing in that way. And you can find relief pitchers that way. You know, guys come out of nowhere every season, so... Uh, hopefully that's the way it works out because the, the bigger need is to find a starting pitcher, and I think it was even uh, even before uh, Rodriguez got hurt. They're very lefty-centric. The Astros and Yankees are teams that they're going to run into at least one of them down the road and uh, right. hammer left-handed pitching in general. So it would be nice to have a quality right-handed starter in there. You know, Hector Velasquez is one of the most uh, unsung guys on the team. He's 9-1 and in his career with like a 266 ERA, 6-0 and this year, but... Uh, uh, he's someone you kind of need in the bullpen to, to, to bridge things. I don't think you want to plug him in full-time as a starter. So I'd like to see them go out and get somebody. The names I've heard so far aren't really uh, intriguing at all. Everybody loves Bartolo Colon, but he, he basically all he does is throw 89 miles an hour fastballs uh, down the middle and hope they don't get it out of the park at this point. Yeah. Um, stri- slow strikes in there. Uh, I'd like to see them get somebody of a little higher quality. It's, it's tough because they're trying to stay under that highest Two hundred thirty-seven million luxury tax threshold. The punishments for that are pretty severe, including uh, losing ten spots in the first round. Uh, but uh, I get the sense that if they found the right guy, they would go over that. So, yeah, because you know, I think there was a story that's out. One target. Yeah, no, there's a story out this week. I think that uh, they were uh, someone was interviewing uh, Sam Kennedy, and they uh, I guess he mentioned that they'd be willing for the right person to go over that uh, that two hundred thirty-seven million. Dollar, uh, you know, luxury tax threshold if they had to. So that's, I mean, I guess that's optimistic. I think the bigger challenge for the Red Sox, though, as opposed to like you know trying to stay under that threshold, might be just be do they have enough pieces.
pieces in their farm system that they can, you know, make a run at a halfway decent starter. I, I heard one person, uh, I think last week, mention the best case scenario for the Red Sox might be to wait for this year's version of Doug Fister, find some guy off the scrap heap and hope hope he catches fire. I know that's not what we probably want to hear, though, as far as, uh, you know, trying to get like a, a solid back end uh, starter for the rotation. Yeah, probably be some guy Duke Dombrowski had with the Tigers, right? Like Fister, go and get Annabelle Sanchez, or uh, you know, who's actually been pitching really well this year, or uh, yeah. you know, Jake Peavy comes out of retirement or something like that. Well, maybe Fister comes off the DL, and maybe that's it's you know, uh, he's probably he's not doing very well in Texas this year, so I I'm not sure how much he could offer, but uh, yeah, no, I, you're right, you're right. I don't see a, a whole lot of. Uh, you know, great options there. I mean, because what do the Red Sox really have to trade in terms of, of really high prospects? I mean, you know, trying to get someone like a J.A. Happ or a Cole Hamels seems totally out of reach for them. Yeah, it definitely does. I mean, the Yankees are probably going to be able to do whatever they want in terms of getting a hitter or another pitcher because their farm system is stacked. And, uh, you know, Houston's got guys who have a lot of appeal, too. They just brought up Ryan Tucker, their young outfielder. Uh, they certainly don't need another young bat in the lineup, so maybe, maybe they'd deal with uh, a prospect in that sense too, but uh, it'll be a second tier or third tier guy that the Red Sox get. It's just a it's a matter of identifying and, and acquiring the right one. Do you have any hopes uh, that uh, either Stephen Wright or Drew Pomerantz could play a factor and and maybe kind of bounce in here and and fill the uh, the Erod hole uh, in the short term? Uh, probably weirdly Pomerantz more than Wright, which is, is strange to say because Pomerantz was abysmal when he was pitching this year, but. Uh, and and Wright's just a knuckleballer, but I worry about his knees. The same basic injury Pedroia had, and we you see the issues he's had coming back. Now, still an issue with uh, Wright as well. Uh, Pomerantz uh, kind of goes unnoticed uh, how good he was last year. He basically gave them a average John Lester season. You know what he went seventeen games, he was seventeen and eight, and uh, uh, struck out a ton of guys, and and was probably their second best starting pitcher last year. So. Uh, they miss that, and it has has kind of gone unnoticed because Erod stepped up, and uh, right. you know Porcello was back to being good, Rick Porcello, for the most part this season. But uh, it would be really nice to get some semblance of of last year's Pomerantz back. And I know he frustrates people around here, and uh, wasn't especially good when they got him at the trade deadline a couple of years ago. But he's a guy who's who's been an effective major league pitcher uh, for about four years now. He's really good in relief with the A's. Went to the Padres, made the All-Star team in the first half in 16, and then the, they traded to the Red Sox. And uh, he wasn't great then. He's battled some elbow issues, but uh, when he's when he's right, he's a really good pitcher. And I uh, maybe that is their best hope. It doesn't look encouraging right now. He hasn't done done very well in his rehab starts, but uh, uh, he's he's the most probably the most talented guy that they could possibly get. Yeah, no, it'll be interesting to see what Dombrowski uh, winds up doing. Uh at the uh, trade deadline or uh, leading up to it. Uh, let's wrap up the Red Sox topic. You had uh, alluded to uh, Dustin Pedroia, and, uh, you know, I, I guess both of us probably are wondering, uh, you know, could, you know, is, is he going to be any kind of a factor at all this year? And it's looking less and less likely. But I guess maybe I want to ask a, a more of a large picture question with you here, Chad, as far as Pedroia goes. Uh, I mean, you've, you've probably dealt with him in your, you know, over the years. And, uh, do you get the, I mean, let's just say he finds out after the season, like he just can't come back from the knee, uh, all the problems with it. And it, it, he's just, you know, it's not responding to all the, you know, the PT and rehab and everything. Uh, my question would be, 
do you think with three more years uh, of his contract left, would he say to himself, would he try to, do you think he'd try to maybe linger around just to, and keep trying to come back just maybe for the sake of being able to, to get that contract? Because obviously if he announced his retirement, he'd be forfeiting all that, uh, those, those future years of the deal. I mean, what, what are your, what are your thoughts with, uh, with Pedroia with regards to if that possibility were to arise? I think he'd hang around because he loves to play baseball, but the money would be a much lesser factor of that. He's made a lot of money already. Uh, made a lot of money as a draft choice. You know, he's a high second-round pick and uh, you know someone who's made money early in his career. Uh, he signed that contract, and it was considered a, a bargain deal for the Red Sox at the time. And it's a deal that over these next couple of years actually has a, a lower average annual salary at the end. I think he makes $12 million in his final season. Right. I mean, it still is an overall rel- – it is a bargain in, in today's day and age of, of baseball salaries. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess there's just part of me that thinks, though, you know, just – you know, you're right. He loves to play baseball, and that's why he might keep trying to come back. But at some point, I, I just wonder if he'd say to himself, well, if I can't go out there and, and play the way I want to play and play, you know, diving for balls and, you know, just all that, you know, that dirt dog kind of style of play that Pedroia has been known for through his career, career I, I would tend to think if you're him if you can't do any of those things you want to think about you know stepping away from the game as painful as that might be for him yeah maybe i think he's one of those guys who's gonna uh, fight it as long as he possibly can even if he doesn't feel like uh it's gonna work work out for him he's gonna keep trying to make it work out right down until the uh you know the, the final moment where he realizes it can't but uh Pedroia's going to fight to extend his career as long as he possibly can. It's what he loves to do. All right. Well, well speaking of fighting it, uh, we'll, we'll kind of uh, wrap up our uh, conversation here and talk about something that you cover for the, the Boston Globe uh, every week, and that is uh, the local uh, sports media. You know, you said we may want to try to avoid some of these topics, but here we are. Uh, really, I guess... Uh, you know, is I guess my big question. Uh, you you mentioned this in a recent media column. You were talking about, uh, you know, the of course ninety eight five. The Sports Hub has uh, finally uh, kind of completed their their move, their physical move. I mean, they had already been, uh, you know, they'd been swapped out, sold by CBS Radio and acquired by Beasley Media Corp. And they're now down in the Beasley uh, building uh, on Morrissey Boulevard in Dorchester. They got brand new state of the art studios. But uh, as a result of I guess the new studios anyway. Uh, uh, they've, uh, I guess, uh, terminated the uh, Toucher and Rich simulcast of the morning, which uh, I have to admit I'm a little disappointed in because uh, as someone who's uh, getting ready for work at that time, I usually uh, sometimes would like to turn on the TV, and I could still listen to them on the radio. I get that. But, uh, you know, it was, kind of, uh, it was kind of nice on occasion to, to be able to see them as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what are your – did you hear anything about uh, the reason why uh, NBC uh, Sports Boston decided not to uh, continue along with that simulcast? and what other plans they, they have uh, going down the road uh, with the 98.5 shows? Yeah, it was Toucher and Rich's call. Um, it felt like it was affecting uh, ratings to a small degree. You know, TV, those shows don't get huge numbers. Uh, back when Dennis McCallion and Kirk Minahan were on Nesson, you know, it was a minuscule effect, but they, they always think it has some effect on the radio ratings. And uh, the morning radio battle in Boston is so contentious that every little fraction of a ratings point counts. TV network is uh, your, your TV simulcast is having some effect uh, on listenership on the radio. Makes sense to some degree that uh, that you, you'd want to point those people toward listening in the radio because that's where their money is. Their 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 uh, their bonuses are based on what their ratings are. They're, they're, it has a financial impact that the television stuff has. 
call and uh, the, the announcement today, I, I haven't written it up, but I tweeted it out. I found it out uh, late this afternoon is that the uh, midday show is going to be in simulcast. It's going to be uh, uh, Gresh and Zolak, uh, Mark Bertrand and, and uh, Scott Zolak. That's a Freudian show. slip. <laughs> simulcasted on uh, NBC Sports Boston. So they'll still have their eight hours of simulcast. It'll just be uh, eight hours continuously going into Felger and Mass uh, rather than the morning and afternoon drive programs. I wonder if that means they'd, they'd bring back the crossover with those two shows, which really hadn't happened uh, since uh, they started broadcasting Felger and Maz's uh, uh, show on uh, on the TV station. Yeah, probably not. It'll be a commercial break in there anyway. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. you, you, you got to sync it all up with the TV now and, and try to line it up that way. But, uh, yeah, it'll be uh, eight hours of sports radio uh, from, uh, from 10 to 6 on uh, NBC Sports Boston now. Well, none of that really matters to me because, frankly, you know, I'm working during the week. I don't even listen to midday sports radio very infrequently unless I have a day off or something. And even then, I'm not usually listening at that time of day. Uh, But, uh, you know, as far as uh, I know, the last time we had you on was, uh, you know, back, uh, I think, last November or so. And I'm trying to think of, like, any major shakeups in Boston sports media since then. I guess the biggest would be uh, the move of uh, or Michael Holly deciding to uh, stop playing uh, double duty. I mean, he had a very long uh, day doing a, uh, a sports radio show with Dale Arnold and Rich Keefe from 2 to 6 on WEI and then uh, hightailing it over to Burlington to do a, a three-hour uh, TV show from 9 to midnight. Uh, so he's cut back and uh, yeah, obviously he's you know he's left EEI uh, to devote himself full-time to the TV side but then you know the Boston Sports Tonight show which is only about 18 months old at this point they've already uh, kind of they've shrunk that show down from three hours down to two and you know it almost I, I'm not sure you know I guess depending on what Holly's getting paid I suppose maybe it was a it was a good move but it it doesn't feel like it he kind of like threw through all of his uh, you know his uh, his work time he threw everything into the you know the TV basket and I don't know if it's going to necessarily pay off because it I what what do you think are NBC Boston uh, Sports Boston's plans with uh with that night show I mean are they happy with it I mean it, it sounds like by cutting the hours back that they're 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 tinkering with it somehow yeah they uh well he did get a boatload of money to leave uh, wow. and, uh you know I, I wrote about it I talked to him extensively when he left and uh you know there's a little bit of a culture personality thing at WEI that made him uh, not enjoy the job quite as much as, as he used to. It was nothing to do with the show he was on. He really enjoyed working No, it probably had to do with the one that was on about eight hours before his, right? Uh, something like that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was, that was definitely a factor in the fact that uh, NBC Sports Boston, uh, you know, Felger really cut back, Michael Felger really cut back in his NBC Sports Boston obligations when he got a new contract with uh, Beasley Media in '98, five, know, probably six months ago now. I guess I'd have to look it out, but it was a while yeah. back. Uh, you don't see him on the uh, the early edition show or anything like that anymore. And so they hired Holly uh, to kind of uh, anchor some of those programs. I think Holly will probably be the uh, pre and post game Patriots guy this year. Oh, okay. I was just going to ask you that actually, if you thought that was yeah, the... he's the, he's the focal point of the night show now. It's cut back to two hours, but. I think you you notice Tom Curran's not on as much. He uh, he's, he's focusing a little bit more on writing now. So uh, Holly's got a lot of responsibilities over there, and a uh, uh, paycheck that's certainly big enough to have enticed them to give up the radio stuff. So. 
Right, and he's got a he's got a, a family with a lot of you know a few young children. So I think that whole quality of life thing too, uh, getting to spend more time uh, with his family, and like you said, getting a big bump in pay. I'm sure there was a myriad of reasons why he decided to. Uh, uh, to make that move, uh, yeah. So I mean, that's probably the the biggest thing going on. I mean, I, I guess the other small minor move was uh, uh, what uh, ninety eight five uh, brought in a new uh, uh, update guy for their nighttime show, uh, or, or what I like to call the you know the the ch- you know the the chair of suffering. Uh, <laughs> you have to sit across from uh, Adam Jones for five hours, and you know, speaking of someone who probably deserves a lot more pay. Uh, uh, I guess uh, now it's uh, Christian Arcan sitting in that chair. Uh, uh, any uh, thoughts about that move, or or did you have did you get to talk to Nick Cattles on his way out the door? Did he mention anything about uh, just going crazy and having to to get out of town after uh, doing that job for a little while? No, I know Nick got a pretty good big gig. He went back to uh, Virginia, where he he left ninety eight five, went to Virginia, came back to work with uh, Adam Jones, and uh, I believe he went back there with a, a better job now. So. Uh, that was his decision. But Arkan, he's interesting. I think he's really talented, and he was on the uh, WEI for a while, kind of a fill-in role. He's the guy you'd hear late night after the Celtics game or something like that. But mm. I've always thought he did a really good job. And, uh, you know, he's not in the prime seat there, but it definitely is a, a uptick in uh, role for him. And I'm glad to see that. And uh, so far, it seems like Ian Jones get along really well. So he's, he's a pretty good balance to the negativity and uh, I, I think that's a, that's a really good fit there. I thought I thought ninety five was smart to hire him. Yeah, well, it's in, you were right. I mean, I guess uh, they were looking to uh, you know you look at the overall depth of the two stations. As far, and you, you hear it a lot now on the weekends, or if you if you happen to you know if you're driving around, which is really the only extent where I I am listening on on weekends is if I'm out driving somewhere to and fro. Uh, you know, you catch some of this, and and, and certainly it doesn't feel like uh, you know EI has the same kind of weekend depth they used to. But uh, ninety eight five, uh, you know, with guys like Arcan, who I guess will probably be doing less weekend stuff going forward, but still. Uh, you know, guys like Johnston and Flynn and, you know, sometimes uh, Hardy shows up on the weekends. So, they've, you know, they've got a few more uh, folks they can turn to. Yeah, Jim Murray, too, with Gasper on the weekends. Oh, right, yeah. To put a little bit more time into uh, into developing a rapport with their weekend shows and developing a, uh, a listenership there for sure. I like Trini and Tomasi a lot on WEI. I think that's a really good show. Yeah, I've, I've heard bits and pieces on that one's okay. I mean, do you think that basically 98.5 is going to probably continue? I mean, as far as the overall ratings between the two stations, you, you mentioned how it can be contentious between some of the, you know, the, the like the drive time shows uh, uh, on the, the varying stations against each other. But overall, it feels like 98.5 still uh, has maintained the, you know, the, uh, the lead uh, in overall ratings over... Uh, uh, WEI. I mean, I think part of that, I guess, has to do with the fact that they uh, broadcast three of the four major sports. Well, let's say four of the major five. We'll count the Revolution. We'll throw them in too uh, when they when they do pick up their games. So uh, yeah, having you know four of the five major teams in town, I think uh, certainly is a is a big help. And 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 by doing that, they also uh, minimize the uh, Adam Jones appearances in the evening. <laughs> yeah, they're busy. I mean, I I don't I can't think of a time EI has beaten them overall in the. Uh... In the last few years, in the twenty—I might be wrong—but in the twenty-five uh, fifty-four men demo, the 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 reason people talk about them being uh, on equal footing is because it's gone back and forth with the morning programs recently. But uh, uh, you know, last spring, uh, I know Kirk and Callahan won. This spring, Toucher and Rich won by a, uh, less than a ratings point. So that—that's what everybody sort of focuses on—is that big battle there. But uh, they're big. And it's pretty tight in middays too, but uh, 95's advantage is Felger and Maz. That show uh, gets.
massive ratings. It was a 14 something in the spring. I think it was a 16 in the winter. Uh, and, uh, you know, Keith and, and, and Dale, and I think Holly was still a part of it at some point with the last book. I think they had a 6.8 this spring. So they're almost doubled up. They, they were doubled up. And, uh, that's uh, that's still their big advantage, and that's a uh, big reason ninety eight five wins overall in those ratings. Uh, yeah, it does feel like uh, with uh, Holly having left that uh, afternoon show on EEI with Dale and Keith, uh, it feels like the ratings maybe have slipped a little bit. Uh, that they're missing Holly. Have you, you haven't heard anything uh, as far as them permanently filling the third chair on that show? Or are they just going to keep kind of rotating uh, like they do on the uh, the Kirk and Callahan morning show? Yeah, I don't know if they're trying to find somebody permanently or not. Uh, I know uh, the program director likes Mark James from Nesson quite a bit, and it seems like he's getting more airtime over there. But uh, I don't know if they found the, the right person uh, to, to come in there uh, and be uh, the, the daily third voice or a regular third voice. Mm. Yes, well, this would be the point where I'd be going off on a rant with the, the state of sports radio in general, having talked about all the shows. But we'll have to just save that for another program. Uh, I'm going to let you go at this time, Chad. Uh, but I, I do want to definitely thank you for uh, for joining me on another edition of the Toddcast, and we hope we'll get you back on again uh, real soon. Thanks, Todd. Appreciate it, man. All right. Well, again, uh, that is uh, Chad Finn from the Boston Globe and uh, Boston.com. Don't forget, you can follow him on Twitter, at Globe Chad Finn. And uh, hopefully uh, those Friday online chats will be coming back soon to, uh, to Boston.com. Uh, be sure to uh, follow uh, the Toddcast on social media. You can search Time Out for Sports Talk on Facebook and on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at TOSTDMC. You can get links to the latest TOST Toddcasts as soon as they're available for your listening pleasure. And you also will get updates on our uh, TV shows. We'll be back live sometime uh, during August, so uh, follow us on social media for that. Again, thanks a lot to, uh, to Chad Finn. From the Boston Globe and Boston.com. And until next time, this is Todd Bloniars thanking you for checking out the TOST Toddcast right here on the Belmont Media Podcast Network.